Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California. You are the co-host. Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes. How many performances do you have left in your... uh, your production of or- Murder on the Orient Express. Well, by the time this comes out, I believe we will have wrapped because um, we usually release on a Monday and we only have the, going into this weekend. We only have three shows left. So, OK, OK. Yeah. So congratulations on your run. <laughs> Thanks. On this episode, we will be reviewing Jed Apatow's The Bubble on Netflix just recently was uploaded to that service for the streaming homework. At the end of the program, we are going to be discussing Ken Russell's The Devils, which is currently streaming on Shudder. But that is that is the agenda. I was going to launch into the, uh, the internet hoax that passed over the week of the rumor that David Lynch had a movie that was going to premiere at Cannes Film Festival. There was all the speculation. Articles were written. Yeah. And then somebody bothered to do the due diligence of asking him. (laughs) And he said, uh, no, that's not true. Yeah. uh, I don't know what to think of all this. I mean, it (laughs) seemed like pretty certain that he had a movie coming out. There was a lot of talk about it. And yeah. And and now, now that it's out there, now that all that talk exists, there are some people that insist he's being Andrew Garfield about it and just fucking lying. Which, I mean, it's always a possibility. I, it you know. is, but I would, I mean, okay, David Lynch is great, and David Lynch definitely has his cult audience, but mm-hmm. this isn't like Spider-Man, where people are definitely going to see it no matter what, right? Right. I said you would think that he would want as much publicity as possible. Although, you know, David Lynch is notoriously enigmatic and and it could be just like a weird joke of his. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't think he's really into viral marketing schemes. Um, He's pretty straightforward when it comes to the business angle of film his actual movies themselves are pretty weird and can mean just about anything anybody but um when it comes to like putting out films and promoting them he's pretty old school about it Uh (laughs) uh-huh so i i I think if he says he doesn't have a movie premiering at cans i mean he doesn't have a movie premiering at cans I I tend to agree uh i i feel like we would yeah i (laughs) yeah I mean, he probably does have a shit ton of footage that he didn't use either for the relaunch of Twin Peaks or for, um, uh, you know, stuff still on the cutting room floor from uh, Inland Empire. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, he's supposedly been working on a secret project for Netflix for like the last three years or something, too. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. He did release that little short film with the monkey. Did you ever watch that? I did not watch the monkey short film. It's weird. I bet it is. But it, this did get me wondering, what is premiering at camp? So I actually looked this up to see what's uh, what we know is going to be playing. Stuff that people might be excited about later in the year. 
we have the, the new film by David Cronenberg, Crimes of the Future, which he also wrote. Stars Leah Sadu, Kristen Stewart, and Viggo Mortensen. Okay. Uh, science fiction thriller of sorts. That could be good. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie is going to premiere, premiere there. Okay. All right. <laughs> this one's interesting. Top Gun Maverick, the Top Gun sequel, is going to premiere there. Is it though? <laughs> no, it movie, is. It I is. Think... It's 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 uh it's coming out. I don't know. I think that movie now that Morbius actually released, I, mm. I think that it now has, holds the record for the most like pushback release dates. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to premiere again, and then probably from there we'll see what happens with it. But I didn't know this. Joseph Kaczynski directed it and he did uh, uh tron legacy and uh what was that movie with tom the other tom cruise movie that was like a sci-fi thing oblivion i think it was called okay does that sound uh, familiar yeah yeah, yeah he did that, that one too yeah he's a he's a he's a really interesting visual stylist i don't know how great he is as a storyteller but um you know both of those movies are fun to look at uh george miller has a movie coming out called 3000 Years of Longing with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. They're like uh, Mad Max, George Miller? That's the one. Oh, cool. Kelly Reichardt has a movie premiering called Showing Up with Michelle Williams. Um, the Lightyear movie is going to be premiering there. Okay. The Buzz I, Lightyear, uh, well, I want to say prequel. What is that? Can? I think so. I think that's what we're learning. Because um, these seem weird. Like, well, yeah, like that movie obviously doesn't need canned buzz to to do what it's going to do. But I mean, and none, uh, obviously that's owned by Disney. It's going they're going to be releasing it. Usually you go to film festivals if you're looking to sell your movie. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, there's some things that are just shown as exhibition and then there's some things that are shown in contest. Okay. Um, and they also do a lot of like repertory stuff and, and, you know, screenings of stuff that hasn't been seen in a long time and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's, it's a festival. Um, right, just, right. I'm just looking at names that I know. Park Chan Wook has a new movie premiering called Decisions to Leave. Okay. Those are the big ones. Um, there, right. I mean, there's going to be a lot of movies there premiering and, you know, for all of the hubbub that, uh, it surrounds the Oscars every year. And um, the publicity that it gets, I always consider can sort of more like the real deal Holyfield because it's kind of like the Olympics of film because all these different countries are competing for the same prize and you have judges from everywhere, like lots of different types of film industries. And, um, you know, usually what wins it can, it's like is in a way it's sort of the pride of that country if they win. Okay. So I always kind of like, you know, I'm interested to know what uh, comes out with the biggest prizes. Um, yeah. That, no, that is interesting. Cause yeah. you hear about the, you know, the big movies that come out of it. Um, right. But it's just kind of like a name that's put on posters. Right. It's like, it's like Sundance is a big deal, but I've never been. I don't re like I don't really get it, but I get it. You know what I mean? Right. Well, Sundance gets a lot of notoriety because there's so many movies that that play there, and there's so many um, marketing deals that are cut there, um, and you know distribution deals that are cut there, 
as with most film festivals. Uh, but like I said, with Cannes specifically, it's much more international. So speaking of uh, awards and dumb stuff like that, the pre-review segment. Now, there's kind of an well, interesting I- paradigm shift happening now because what used to be like the indie art house film um, that only played in like 25 cities. Now, a lot of that's being put online. So yeah. that's giving a, people a lot more access to these movies than before. Well, and it'll be also- interesting to see how that bears out. But I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the the death of the the mid-budget movie. I read a book a long time ago. Um, uh, what was the title of that book? I forgot what it was called, but I read it. <laughs> uh, where the author talks about uh, tent poles and tadpoles. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of the the era we live in. Now, this book was written in like 2014, so it's only become much more the case since then. But um, she talked about how like uh, mid mid budget movies that normally would have been the bread and butter of the industry Mm -hmm. um, because of the widening of the international market, specifically China uh, and um, you know, lots of other things that go into it. Studios are taking less chances on movies that, cost let's say 10 to 70 million dollars and they really only want care about making you know the big studios really only care about making giant event franchise blockbusters Mm -hmm. and only Um, a couple of them are good at it right (laughs) and we know which ones those are those are the the that are reliable anyway Mm -hmm. um whatever's kind of left whatever kind of scraps financially are left for indie distributors are putting in these tiny little uh, tadpoles that are at, you know, anywhere between uh, $500,000 to $3 million movies, Um, which a lot of them can be really cool and really interesting. And there's a lot of good work that comes out of that. And it helps people sort of uh, get their careers going. Um, but a lot of them sort of graduate from that, you know, $3 million movies to then directing Avengers five. Yeah. And they don't really get that like middle, you know, nobody's like wants to make like the, the $30 million boxing movie anymore mm-hmm. um, or whatever, you know, or the, the, the $25 million romantic comedy. Um, so I wanted to sort of like talk about, what are some movies that have been released within the the trenches of this era since 2010 on uh, from 20 from 2010 to now that should have been talked about more, but were sort of ignored because they weren't either a giant event blockbuster or a super niche indie if there were movies that were kind of going for that mid-budget level and maybe got buried in the buzz because of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so not stuff that necessarily I think should be like awards worthy, but not but necessarily, just, but I mean, you know, just movies that d- didn't necessarily get their due. 
Right. I mean, like back in the day, like a movie like Silence of the Lambs could sweep the Oscars. Sure. You know, a movie like, I mean, this was a probably a pretty big budget movie, um, all things considered, especially if you adjust for inflation. But a movie like Forrest Gump, you know what I mean? Um, That uh, original IP stuff that isn't going for the Comic Con audience or the slam dance audience uh i want to hear an example of one from you first just to make sure i'm even on the right track here okay with what you mean okay one that comes to mind is a movie i recently rewatched. uh now denny Villeneuve is is uh now the dune guy or the blade runner guy or whatever he's become um and you know couldn't happen to a better person really talented director but I feel like his film Prisoners, which was his first English language film, uh, was kind of ignored. And yeah, okay. All right. a lot, it sort of gained an audience through word of mouth later on. Um, but it, I think to date has some of like the people who's in that movie, like some of their best performances. Um, and I think even when it came out, I was sort of like middle of the road on it. I was like, you know, I liked it, but I wasn't sure about it. And then it was when I watched it recently, I was like, no, this is actually better than even I gave it credit for. It's aged better than I even realized. Hmm. Um, and I think it's Hugh Jackman's best performance to date. And I, I think mean, it, uh, the movie has a lot of interesting things to say, but it's also like a hard boiled mystery and makes no qualms about the genre stuff mm-hmm. it is, that it's uh, playing around in. It's super dark, but it's also it doesn't feel grandiose, but it but it does feel sort of artistically minded, even though it's made for a mainstream audience. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Uh, Yeah, I've been that's one that I've always been kind of curious about and I might get to it eventually, but um, you should. I I think I think it's a it's really, really solid uh, thriller. Cool. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, one that I picked, um, and and maybe you can tell me if I'm am or am not on the right track here. I am a firm believer believer that just because something is is genre doesn't mean that it is necessarily dumb or or cheap. Um, which you know, I I think that. Um, and, and I do think this movie was pretty critically rated, but I just wanted to give it a shout out. And um, I really liked Hell or High Water. I, I think Taylor Sheridan, mm-hmm. uh, as a writer, is, I mean, you know, we've talked about him a lot on, on, the, on the show. He, he's stuff is very firmly within genre, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it is also... I, I feel like elevated in a way. And I think he's low key becoming uh, kind of that, that mid budget Cohen brother uh, Cohen brothers, like his stuff yeah. kind of reminds me of that. Um, yeah. His stuff is kind of like, it's like the midway point between the Cohen brother, like when they're in thriller mode mm-hmm. and like, a John Sayles character study 
within a genre thing like Lone Star. Like if you took like the midway point between Lone Star and No Country for Old Men, you would have T- Taylor Sheridan. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I guess, you know, I, I mentioned Hell or High Water, but I also I think most of his movies kind of land in this area that we're mm. talking about here. I mean, like, I very well just as easily could have said Sicario instead yeah. of instead of Prisoners, as far as Denny Valenil goes. I actually uh, which thought Taylor Sheridan wrote. Um, I actually thought that's the one you were going to, to mention. So, yeah, I think he mm. is. Very much in this realm of movies that you're talking about that are kind of disappearing, of mm-hmm. you know, mid budget thrillers and and kind of killing it too. Like, he's like one of the few guys who is doing this mm-hmm. and is winning with yeah. his strategy. And now he's like the showrunner of one of the most watched television shows in the country with the, the Yellowstone, Yellowstone yeah, and and the spinoff show. Yeah, I've heard it's good, but I don't know about that. But yeah, exactly. So I think um, kind of all of his movies are are, are in this area for me, and uh-huh. and even the worst ones uh, are are very watchable. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I was surprised that Hell or High Water got the love that it got. Um, I think I don't know. Maybe it's because there's a, there is sort of a craving for this type of movie and they usually sort of reserve it for the Coen brothers, but maybe they, I don't know they were doing something else that year. So this one was technically released. at I want to say Sundance. It was definitely a festival movie, but I think this is the type of movie that we're, we're still talking about. And it's the first time, you know, when I was watching interviews with the director that I heard this term smart house, which is, uh, you know, not necessarily the the most highbrow, obscure art house cinema, but you know, just well realized, well told stories on a somewhat smaller scale. Um, and that is the movie Dear White People. Oh, okay. Um, which is a college comedy, a very prescient college comedy, because this came out in twenty. 20- 14, I want to say, or 2015. I want to say 2014 because I was in grad school when it when it premiered. And uh, it talks a lot about sort of like racial politics on campuses and sort of, you know, microaggressions that happen between mixed racial groups and how that kind of plays out in these bigger implications. You know, when it when it comes to societal racism and classism in this upper league kind of school where all of these people go. But it, it also sort of plays it like like a campus comedy. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not it has all of these big ideas. It is smart, but it's it, it also wants to, uh, you know, have like the the drunken parties and. And, uh, you know, show like the the loner sort of win the day and, you know, have all of these kind of dynamics that play out in a lot of campus comedies, but just does it with a a slightly more potent fuel in the engine. Also adapted as a a series for Netflix, which I have not watched, but um, I I really like this movie a lot. It owes a lot to uh, movies like School Days by by Spike Lee. 
um, as well as has like kind of like some Rushmore-ish undertones to it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, this is another one I, I haven't seen, um, but I've, I've definitely heard good things about. It's very, very good. And and it was also the movie that introduced me and I think a lot of people to Tessa Thompson, who, you know, steals the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, she's great in everything. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, another one that I have uh, is Tolkien, the, the biopic about J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw this at WonderCon mm-hmm. in twenty nineteen, twenty eighteen. I think twenty nineteen. Yeah, WonderCon twenty nineteen, spring of twenty nineteen, and yeah, that's where it, it premiered too. I, I think I think that was before the movie had an official release date. Yeah, um, and I just, I, you know, it's kind of funny how sometimes biopics get like the full force of a studio behind them. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, with Bohemian Rhapsody and rocket man and such. Um, And, and, you know, it's kind of its own level of movie. It's, it's very much its own genre, even though, even if, even if they don't treat it like it is. And I just thought this was like, I don't know, a really solid movie uh, that just, kind of got completely ignored by everyone and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I don't know. I just think it, it told a very interesting story and uh, I I liked the approach to it. I think all the performances are great, um, uh, especially Nicholas Holt. Um, And it just, I don't know, just seems like it, it kind of just didn't get any attention that I think it deserved. Yeah, it was it was good. And that is exactly the type of movie that in like 1993 would have had a lot of more consideration. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and just because of of the fact that it's this very recognizable person um, and, mm. you know, you have stars attached to it. So it's not like the the biopics and stuff that happened where there's no selling point for it like you know mm-hmm. uh nicholas holt is a is a you know he's a big actor he's in a lot of stuff uh lily collins is also great in this like it, it i don't know i think it just kind of deserved a little bit more attention than it got yeah you know i think a lot of people they know who J.R. tolkien is in theory like they might have a kind of a a vague idea of who he is based upon lord of the rings um, and the Hobbit, but I don't, I think in general, the world of literature just isn't as sexy or as sellable as like a Rocky, a rockumentary style, um, biopic. For sure. I mean, you know, especially... you're not going to have like the highs and lows of like drug addiction and infidelity and, and all the stuff that you get in those kind of movies. Yeah, I, for sure. But I will tell you one thing. I think about Tolkien as a movie a lot more than I think about Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, yeah, I mean, that movie was, I mean, come on. <laughs> um, um, the last movie I wanted to talk about on this list is uh, one we reviewed on the show and I thought was really cool and really stylish and a lot of fun, but kind of got ignored or was maybe like, not marketed very well. Uh, bad news at the El Royale. This one was on my list as well. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, this uh, big ensemble mystery, very violent, 
very uh, uh, shocking and um, filled with interesting performances and um, plays yeah. around with chronology in interesting ways. And I don't know. I just thought it, there was a lot going on in that movie that uh, people just, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, it kind of got ignored. Yeah, and I think it's it's a shame, uh, it, you know, in in a world where every Quentin Tarantino release is going to be, you know, hyped to hell like this movie should have done more, <laughs> you know, because it is it is firmly within that world. It feels like it's in sort of that in a similar genre territory. But I mean, Quentin Tarantino at this point can sell a movie just on his name only. If if Quentin Tarantino wasn't a known quantity, do you think that a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would have gotten the love and attention it did? No, absolutely not. That, that's yeah. exactly what I'm saying, is, is Quentin Tarantino's name has become so bankable that, you know, a movie of sort of his earlier, a movie that is very similar to his style and vibe can't sell itself on the style and vibe like it you know it it, right. it it needs his name attached to it true yeah and i i just think that's interesting and kind of a shame was uh drew goddard right mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean and drew goddard is you know he's been a successful writer um but wasn't was this uh his directorial debut no that can't be right. No, because he directed uh, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, according to his IMDb credits, he's only credited for, uh, as, as far as feature-length films, uh, Cabin in the Woods and Bad Times at the El Royale. Okay. Which is, a sh I mean, those are both great movies. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a shame that he hasn't directed more. Um, and hopefully he does. Yeah, I think he has it in him. I think, you know, I mean, he's more than proven himself. Um, I think those are both solid films. Maybe they both sort of suffered from difficult marketing. And I think, really, I think it's just going to come down to the right movie in the right time. And eventually oh, yeah. people will be like, oh, yeah, Drew Goddard. Where has he been my whole life? Hopefully, uh, Bad Times at the O'Reilly didn't flop enough that, you know, he. hopefully he has a next movie. True. Yeah. If not, I'm sure he'll be put on some big TV show. Um, okay, so that was uh, that was kind of that. But did you have any others on your list that we didn't bring up? Um, I, I have a uh, a couple that I'll just give quick shout outs to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Chef by John Favreau. Okay, um, yeah. I just think it, it as someone who is as um, gotten the reputation of being the guy who turned, you know, the MCU around uh, yeah. and got it on its feet and has also kind of saved Star Wars. Uh, I, I just think, you know, this was a smaller, more personal project of his that I really liked that mm -hmm. I think is very easy to kind of forget about considering uh, his influence on blockbuster culture. For sure. Um uh, I also wanted to give a, a shout out to the movie Hustlers, which uh, we mm -hmm. did a review of it, because I felt like it got pretty much completely snubbed by all the, like the award recognition. Right. It was kind of underseen and under talked about. I felt too. like I felt like that movie was 
was pretty good and exceptional at what it was doing. And yeah, and it was this interesting, you know, a very adult, sexy, you know, but not dumb, <laughs> uh, just kind of good, solid movie. Right. Um, and, and it's a shame that it didn't, you know, uh, JLo definitely got snubbed and it, it just, I, I think, uh, deserved a little more attention than it got. I agree. I agree. The last two that were on my list that we didn't talk about at length, um, uh, the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I think that's just like a, a near perfect thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked about it a lot on this on this podcast, but uh, and uh, if, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, it comes up a lot too. I just, that movie's just very very good, and uh, a movie that not a lot of people remember or probably anymore. I think this came out around 2011. It's called Hope Springs. Did you ever see that one? Uh, no, I know the name. I've heard the name though, and I thought this was a much older movie. No, I mean, it came I'm out- thinking of Hope Floats, <laughs> which okay. I did not see. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, Hope Springs is Tommy Lee Jones and Meryl Streep. They are an older couple who are trying to get their love life going again um, after years of sort of ignoring it um, or letting it kind of go by the wayside. And they go to like a couple's retreat where Steve Carell plays their love guru type it's a type of setup that it could off actually go like really really bad <laughs> yeah um but they actually treat the subject matter with sincerity and earnestness and you just have three very good actors putting in all the work um all right. and it's uh it's it's a kind of tender and sensitive but genuinely uh funny movie yeah, you don't get a lot of movies that are just sort of about people anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh and and that is a shame because yeah, unless they're famous saw, people. Yeah, yeah. And even yeah. then everything seems so premise driven right now specifically. Mm-hmm. Um that it is it I don't know. This seems like more of a TV show idea nowadays. Nowadays it would be. Yeah. It, it, but this was a it was a it was the exact type of movie Again, had it come out in the 80s or 90s, would have been a movie that a lot of people would have seen and talked about. Cool. Um, and it's definitely worth your time. Uh, let's go ahead and start talking about The Bubble. Uh, this is the new Judd Apatow comedy that came out on Netflix. Do you want to describe it? Sure. Uh, movie production studio with a very successful franchise of films called Cliff Beasts, have decided to try and film a sequel during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so they create a production bubble um, with all these high-profile actors and direct and a director and, and uh, staying in all, you know, in the confines of this hotel, trying to make this huge, big-budget blockbuster movie yes all while testing constantly um you know this takes place sort of within like the first year of the pandemic it's probably when the movie was made as well i'm guessing um not the movie within the movie but the actual movie the bubble 
mm-hmm. I think was probably made during these times as well. Um, yeah, there's some stuff that was like immediately dated. Right. Yeah. And so they're, you know, they're doing a lot of testing and they're talking a lot about like production cautions and, you know, things like that. And um, there's all sorts of issues going on in the production between clashing egos and contracts being negotiated and people storming off set and, and uh, uh, stunts gone wrong and, and so on and so forth. Yep. Um, I guess the main character is of sorts or uh, sort of the point of view characters, Karen Gillan as Carol, who had left the franchise at one point to pursue bigger more important work. And then after the pandemic sort of dries all that up, she returns for part six here in the hotel and everyone's sort of a little bit fake about whether or not they trust her or agree with her career choices, or maybe they're jealous and, you know, that kind of stuff as well. Um, And then uh, you have uh, uh, Fred Armisen as the, the new director who has like grander ambitions for, you know, the sixth in a dinosaur franchise. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, a you know, there's a kind of a funny joke about how he, he that did that exact thing that you were talking about where, you know, he directed this small, like, indie movie and then they brought right. him in to uh, direct this movie. Yeah, he had, he, had made a, he had made a movie on his iPhone and that premiered at Sundance and so they gave him part six of cliff beasts um what did you think of the bubble i mean it's a shame this movie's a massive turd uh (laughs) this movie sucks yeah this movie's real real bad it's almost entirely unfunny Mm -hmm. uh it just meanders for its two-hour runtime it's only like two hours but it feels so much longer uh, uh-huh. because it's almost devoid of anything good. And there's like five or six montage scenes yep. fluffing out this runtime uh, with several of them being dance numbers. Yep. Yeah, this movie, there's not much good I can say about it. I pretty much hated this. Yeah, this was a miserable film experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's I wanted to turn it off. I was so bored and done with it and just like blah. Yeah. It, it, now, when Don't Look Up came out mm-hmm. and I was reading all of this like vitriolic, angry reviews that were being written about it at that time by pretty much the consensus of the film critic of that time who were saying, it's smug, it's arrogant, it's uh, it's about privileged, rich actors patting themselves on the back, thinking they're changing the world when they're not, and whatever. You know, things that I ultimately didn't agree with because I thought it was a pretty good movie. Like, I'm like one of the few who actually liked Don't Look Up, besides the Academy voters, um, who do actually... Uh, uh, nominated it for Best Picture, and I put it in my top 10 movies of the year. I thought it was interesting enough to warrant that. Um, mm. But you would think that the movie they saw was this, because this is that movie. But here's the thing. 
the movie is kind of making fun of that sometimes. And sometimes it's not like it, it mm-hmm. doesn't it like if if they were commenting on something like that on rich and title a- asshole actors who think they're changing the world. Right. Like then there would at least be a premise here. But to me, the only premise that seems consistent throughout the entire thing is there's a pandemic like there's there's nothing here. There's no characters, motivations and and continuities seem to change from scene to scene. Yeah, uh, I cannot believe this is Judd Apatow. Like he's he's normally, you know, uh, uh, even his worst stuff is usually consistent. And and there's at least, you know, an occasional bit or something. You'd think this is somebody's first movie. Like it's barely coherent. Yeah, it it really feels piecemealed together. Yeah, like um, I I'm wondering if if that's because they filmed it during the pandemic and and you know maybe I don't I, know. I don't think they knew what they were going to have. I don't. I mean, I think that they had some stuff planned out, and I think they had maybe. The well, loosest okay. skeleton that, of, that's, of, of an idea of where things were going to go from point A to point B. That's that's the other thing I was going to say about this movie. Yeah, it feels like some of the worst improv I've ever seen. Right, it's like when you go to an improv show that's not working. Yeah, and it's it's that like I mean you can attest to this that like improv quicksand where yeah where once you're in it the more you struggle to get out of it the faster you sink that is and you exactly just have to sit there and watch it happen yeah um, it, this it, is that but on film on film and with, and I with just, actors there's who so should many, know better there's so many ideas in this movie that could have worked right i i remember when the teaser trailer came out mm-hmm. uh it came out advertising Cliff B6. And I thought that was hilarious. Like mm-hmm. I thought they made a, a franchise movie sequel without having any of the other franchise movies existed. And I'm that like, that's been, a great idea. That would have been a good movie. That would have been think a good movie. The, the few, the few things that do, that do work in this movie and by work, I mean, barely is, during the actual sequences where they're shooting the cliff beat stuff yeah, there's on a some, big green screen stage. And then it does this thing a couple of times where it'll show what it looks like in post-production, like with the creatures and everything, like we're watching it as a movie. And mm-hmm. then it'll cut to them on a green screen stage with people with ping pong balls on them. And, just, and it sort of like shows the, the surreality or the, like, you know, the, the Fellini-esque weirdness that is doing that type of cinema. Um, and that, yeah, well, there's that, something there that yes. in just that, but it's, it's a kernel of an idea that is not exploited enough. Well, I, another idea that is better than what we got is there's also uh, this do- like documentary filmmaker who's chronicling the process. So there's right. a movie there's within a, the movie within the movie. There's an EPK guy who's going around shooting stuff, 
for behind the scenes footage and he's trying to make something more out of it. And, and for yeah. the life of me, I could not figure out why this wasn't presented as a, as the mockumentary. Right. Because it, at least then it wouldn't have had this weird level of artifice. Mm-hmm. I, I think it could have worked a little bit better. Um, I, I mean, you still can't, you still can't save a turd. Like you can't polish a turd. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, the, you know, the big problem with this movie is there's not, you know, it's, it's not funny. There's no like good jokes. There's no, there's no core humor to it. Um, mm-hmm. Other than, oh, isn't a pandemic weird guys, which I don't know if they realize how tone deaf a lot of those jokes come off. Right. Uh, There's a point at the end of the movie or towards the end of the movie where somebody says they're going to do this TikTok thing so that, you know, to try and seem sensitive. And then there's another person there who says you're just going to come off as entitled if you do this. And it's like, where's that self-awareness for this whole fucking movie? Because right. This movie is the imagine uh, sing-along as a comedy that lasts for two hours and 11 minutes. Yes, yes. It, it is that bad. <laughs> it, it's, it's cringe-topia, the whole thing. Yeah. And, um, and again, it's, it's just shocking to me that it's by Judd Apatow because, it, you know... It, the the level of talent here should work, but I also think that's maybe part of the problem is, you know, it's a bunch of actors that you've heard of that don't necessarily fit into the parts they've been cast, but they get sort of shoehorned in because it's all of their famous friends. Right. I, you, it's, it's one of those classic cases of they probably had fun on set, but none of it translates on film. Yeah. There is only one joke that I thought was even or 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 bit or or whatever that I even thought was kind of almost worked and that's mm-hmm. because of uh the two actors involved um the the stuff with Pedro Pascal and uh Mary uh Mary Bakalova uh, was who in was in Borat too uh yeah and yeah. phenomenal in that um and, and again I I think I think they're both the best part of this movie, which isn't saying a lot. It's not saying um, anything at all. No, it's I mean, not. Yeah. Um, Peter Pascal, but, he's kind of playing the a sort of weirdo sex crazed Johnny Depp type. Yeah. yeah. And and she's uh, like a what a, a desk person at this hotel. Mm. Actually, I think the more interesting cast isn't the ultra famous people, but it's the people who play the. The uh, the side characters, the, the, not the side, the uh, like the the hotel COVID staff. staff and the hotel staff and the COVID staff and and like even like craft service and like if the movie had been from their perspective more so, I mean, I don't know. You could cut this cake a thousand different ways and you'd end up with something better because it's this is just this movie's fucking awful. It is so bad. It is literally throwing everything at the wall and leaving it all on the wall like yeah I, I i just can't i just cannot fathom how this was the final product and then at the very end as a swift fuck you and a kick in the nuts they make this kind of wink and a nod joke to the audience of like 
Well, I mean, the, the, you know, the director within the movie, the director of the movie within the movie says something to the effect of like, well, we don't, we don't know exactly what we got, but what can you expect? It was a pandemic is like pretty much Judd Apatow telling the audience like, Hey, sorry, if it wasn't the best thing you've ever done, this is, this is what we had to work with. It's like, no, go fuck yourself. You just yeah. wasted, take all that money you spent making this piece of trash and like fund a hospital or something because this sucks. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not necessarily going to go that route because of like, you know, of course we can always tell people that, you know, we can always tell the rich, like, no, I not, know. I, yeah, I yeah. only, I only ever get this indignant about the money wasted when it's this bad. I mean, he, here's the thing. I don't, I don't even care. About I should, I, 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 I don't want to think about how much movies cost. Like I try not to as a profession, I try not to, but when I see like this level of, of disinterest in the, in, in its own end product to the point where they even try to apologize for it in the movie, then I get mad. I'm just mad. I watched it. Yeah. I'm more mad about the time lost that, you know, that I, I mean, sure, you try to make a movie and it turns out to be dog shit. So don't release it or whatever. You know what I mean? That's money gone. Whatever. Movies are hard to make. They are, you know, they can be unpredictable. You don't always know what you're going to get. But the fact that they released it, the fact that they put this out, like I would be embarrassed if if my name was I, I would be like, no, we can't put this movie out. It's terrible. And God damn, do they need that many dance scenes? Well, you know, they weren't going to hit their two hour and 11 mark without at least three of them. Uh, right. Yeah. That's another thing. It's like, I understand, like Judd Apatow has a reputation of being long in the tooth and not being a, a very rigorous editor, but holy shit. If you were going to pick up a new skill, it should have been that, you know, King of Staten Island came out two years ago. Mm-hmm. Like that's the same guy. Like what the fuck is this? Yeah, and I haven't loved every single thing he's ever done, but this is. This but I've is never, a new I've love. never hated a movie he's done like this. I, yeah. I, I, I always thought that he's at least consistent. Like even, even the worst of his stuff is still, you know, entertaining enough and and at least watchable. This yeah, is like likable not- characters, likable actors. No. Not here. Here's the thing. You don't need to have likable characters. You know, it, it's always Sonny proved that. Uh, uh, Seinfeld proved that. You don't need likable characters in comedy, mm-hmm. but you do need to like what they're like watching it. You need to like, you know what I mean? Like, if they're going to be unlikable characters, play them as that. that right. That's fine. But this movie is so wishy washy, it can't pick a single perspective. For more than one dance sequence, not only does this movie have nothing to say, it has negative to say. It has it's 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 so lacking in any kind of vision that it is like anti humor almost. It's terrible. Yeah, it's uh, it's really exceptionally bad. Um, And, you know, we talked a lot about like the talent wasted. Um, What? happened in the career of Keegan-Michael Key post Key and Peele? Because I feel like 
I feel like it was like a joint twin thing where like the dominant twin was removed and now he's dying. Yeah, I don't because know. is it he's he made just, one bad career choice after another. Yeah, does he just not say no to anything? I, I he's I, funny. He is in in when he, he's used right. He's funny enough that even though I knew this movie sucked from minute one, every time he he appeared in the movie, I was like, okay, good, it's going to get funny now, and then it didn't. Well, he is. I, his character, uh, I think, is one of the worst offenders in what I'm talking about. Right. In, in its complete lack of consistency. Like, at the beginning, they introduce him and, oh, man, let's also talk about how literally the first 20 minutes of this movie is nothing but exposition. Uh, and it's like, it's, it's sure. not that hard of yeah. a concept, guys. But literally, nobody says anything that isn't, this is my character's name and this is my thing. Uh, only to abandon it, you know, two scenes later. But his, I think, is particularly egregious um, because, like, some of the characters have, like, a foil to play off of, right? Uh, Karen Gillan has, like, the soccer guy, and uh, David Duchovny has... um, Leslie Mann. Leslie Mann, and um, Pedro Pascal has Maria Bakalova. But he's just kind of doing his own... Like, you know, his character just kind of has nothing to bounce off of. And they introduce him as like this self-help, like he's kind of this self-help guru guy who's like uh, uh, founded a cult, maybe. Yeah, he's like Um, a faux spiritualist, like sort of a a weirdo Tom Cruise type, but they don't want to say Scientology, so they make something else up. Well, I I also kind of thought about the way uh, The Rock kind of, promotes like you know self-improvement and stuff and and like okay let's take that to an absurd level and and, yeah and there's something there like that sure that can be a character's thing a character's premise but then they never do anything with it right like like at all okay like could we at least go back to the to the cult thing because there could at least be some comedy nuggets to mine there but no they just abandon it and then He's just kind of this inconsistent, meandering guy. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing like structure to any of this. There's no rising or falling tension. Um, there's no, like, one scene does not necessarily lead to the next in a way that is beneficial to, to narrative. So it, it just feels like this big string of vignettes of poorly staged actors riffing off of each other but accomplishing nothing comedically yeah um like i said the only thing that felt kind of planned and like not the best satire in the world but at least it's something is those scenes where they're filming cliff beast on the green screen yeah i I think that had been the the whole movie then that could have been something again there are so many other ways this movie could have been something that yeah that we could we could spin around in a circle with our eyes closed and point at one element of this movie and it could work mm. the problem is that they just they don't they don't commit to making a movie here they don't connect commit to yeah. any kind of story it's just oh pandemic sucked huh guys we couldn't make movies 
And then they didn't. And then they didn't. Um, uh, This is an F. I don't give these out um, willy nilly. I don't give A's out willy nilly and I don't give F's out willy nilly. But this this one really deserved it. I think the last one was uh, Space Jam 2. And I think Mm -hmm. this is this is bad for similar reasons. Yeah, this is this is Space Jam 2 for over the hill comedy actors who should know better. Yeah. I really wanted to like David Duchovny in this, too, and I just couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. F. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, mad at it. It's so bad. Even the fake franchise, Cliff Beast, I'm like, are you making fun of Jurassic Park, or is this supposed to be Fast and Furious? Like, like even it is so nonspecific and wishy-washy. Right. It, it's, it's why I say even that as an angle maybe narratively would have been more rigorous, but it doesn't necessarily mean it would have been a good movie either. Um, because yeah, Cliff Beast, it feels like at be- like it, at best, like an asylum kind of thing. Like that would go straight to DVD. Wouldn't- yeah. Cause it, it doesn't feel like the fake movie has its own mythology. It doesn't feel like right. it. Ha- and I get that they're making fun of blockbuster temples and stuff, but like, if you look at the Fast and the Furious movies, like they're still, you know, they they get more entertaining the the more off the rails they go, but they still have like a grounding mythology. They still have a core uh, uh, of what those movies are, and mm-hmm. this it doesn't it doesn't even feel like their frank, fake franchise has that. Right. Yeah. No, this sucks. Don't watch it. Yeah, you probably already have, and you probably already turned it off. Yeah, if you were not reviewing this movie, you were probably smart enough to turn it off after the 45-minute mark when you realize it wasn't going to get good. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go ahead and move on to the streaming homework. Uh, this is The Devils. Uh, this was originally released in 1971. It is an English production directed by Ken Russell, who would later go on to make films like Altered States and uh, Tommy's The Who motion picture. And it is based on the novel, the book novel, historical account, The Devils of Loudon by Aldous Huxley. It tells a story of a French priest named Urbain Grandier, played by Oliver Reed, who is overseeing this monastery in France. Um, sort of in this rural area of France where uh, he kind of comes from a different uh, school of thought where he does not believe that uh, priests should or have to be celibate. He's known as, at the time, uh, the Jesuits, who were more by those standards of the 1600s within Catholicism. They would have been considered more kind of liberal leaning. Um, as far as some of the doctrine goes, um, he is also lusted after by basically every woman in this community, including uh, many of the nuns who teach in a, uh, a, a school being led by uh, Vanessa Redgrave as Sister Jeannie, who uh, is hunchback, kind of hard-nosed authoritarian style uh, nun in this area um, who has her own issues that she's dealing with. And it's as far as these different sexual desires that she feels for 
for Oliver Reed and his mustache. And yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Urban Grandier is, he is, he get he gets it in um, with just about anybody he wants and uh, has no qualms about it and is certainly not trying to hide it. Um, Especially when he sleeps with uh, a nobleman's daughter and uh, accidentally knocks her up, at which point he becomes immediately disinterested in her and leaves her. Um, this leads into a series of unfortunate events for Urbane in where cardinals and the upper echelons of the church try to uh, take over this area of France um, by uh, using sort of this I mean, what else? What else do you call it? A propaganda campaign, stating that they think that he is, uh, you know, possessed, possessed by the devil himself, and that he is using black magic on all of these women around him, including these nuns, and have convinced the nuns themselves that they are possessed. And at which point they start sort of writhing in sexual ecstasy and putting on these grand displays in front of everyone to sort of. Um, take down this priest. Uh, this also kind of well, ties it, in with the French government, yeah. who who also wants to use use the powers of the Catholic Church to expand their influence over uh, the the sort of the fracturing of the uh, Catholic uh, order of the time. Yeah. So specifically, um, Grandier is defending this town of Ludon, um, mm-hmm. which, ha- you know, has these uh, ramparts and, and um, walls built up around it. Uh, and politically, that doesn't jive with the church's agenda of, of trying to unify uh, the kingdom under Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the king, uh, you know, had sort of promised these municipalities independence and uh particularly this one only being basically defended by this one guy and so you know how do they get rid of this guy well it turns out he's a a bit of a womanizer uh and you know so let's cry devil and use that as an excuse to um uh try him as a as a, a complete sinner and as a witch right and this was in the middle of the 1600s so the the witch hunts are already starting um in Europe at that time um so there is uh already sort of a precedence for for witch hunting and killing people based upon these rumors of black magic and, and this type of thing. There's, there's these sort well, there, of this opportunistic also- priests who, who travel from city to city and they, they know how to sort of rile up people mm-hmm. um, and they uh, uh, use lots of different sort of propaganda techniques to, to, to turn people against each other. And and this was also during the plague, you know, it, it was, uh, so there's a lot of the average citizens are just in these plague death pits. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are literally being wheeled out of their homes and thrown into uh, pile fires. Yeah. And, and also this is uh, towards the tail end of the crusades, which was a, mm-hmm. a holy war 
um, which yeah. is what sort of left the Catholic Church um, sort of I, vulnerable. I believe this is a, a, what historians refer to as the worst time to be alive. <laughs> Not a great one. I uh, when I when I assign this, um, I've seen this movie a few times. The first time I saw this movie was on YouTube. It was like a bad VHS rip. Um, oh, that's a shame. And it was in like multiple parts uh, back uh, before YouTube like cracked down on that sort of thing. Uh, this would have been like, I don't even know, like 20. Well, they found a way to monetize it. So, right. Yeah. This would have been like 2010 or something. Or tw- when I, the fir- first time I'd seen this movie, quote unquote, seen. And every time I've seen it since, I've seen a longer cut of it because over the course of time, this movie, when it was when it was initially released in the early seventies, um, it was immediately kind of like banned and uh, seen as like yeah, uh, you know extremely um, profane and uh, and it was heavily edited and uh, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Sacrilegious. Well, yeah. Well, yes. Censored. It was heavily uh, censored, always. and there were lo- lots of scenes that were cut out and never saw the light of day. And over the decades, more and more of this movie is kind of coming to light and being put back in. So the second time I saw it was in L.A. at a uh, screening at the Arrow. And I think that was probably maybe 10 minutes longer than the version I saw. And then this time, this is this, this the one they have on Shutter right now is like a DVD rip. Uh, that comes from England. Um, but even still, at like I think an hour 50, it is not, uh, still not uh, its completed original cut. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. I, as far as I know, the only time the movie's ever been exhibited in, in, it, in its entirety was like, I don't I want to say like eight to 10 years ago at a festival. And there it's, it's, you know, that specific, that assembly has never been um, put out uh, for mass consumption. Is it just like they think it's too shocking? I, I don't, I don't totally understand. Well, I mean, at this point, it's just like a film preservation issue. Gotcha. Um, you know, there's like, there's very few uh, original cuts of the film left. They're kind of piecemealing it. You know, this kind of happens with movies that um, were ignored or, you know, lost over time. Um, and like even movies like Metropolis, this happened where they're like, oh, hey, we just found a couple more reels of Metropolis in fucking South America. Let's go ahead and throw that on the newest release. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I hear about that, uh, you know, especially with like old ass movies, like right. um, well, with silent films, especially, yeah, yeah. Um, when it was on nitrate, and you know, a lot of that film rot- rotted in the cans or was blown up during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, it's more like you know, it was heavily censored. So then there was all of this footage that was kind of like put away and then people didn't know where it was. And some people are kind of coming forward with it. And it's, it's interesting because I, I mean, I, I guess I get it mm -hmm. because, you know, this doesn't make the church look great. Um, But I also kind of don't get it. Like I didn't, I didn't think anything was that 
like crazy shocking or you know what i mean i i don't know i guess it's just viewing it with 2022 eyes versus uh i guess you know 1971 eyes i i i guess i don't totally get what all the controversy is about well i do Uh, know that some of the stuff and you see a couple scenes which i i think were new to me on this viewing um there's a couple scenes where we see vanessa redgrave as this uh as this mother nun where she's sort of imagining father Grandier as Christ in these kind of sexual situations. And I think there's, there's more of that that was cut out. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I guess, I guess people were more sensitive to that. Like I remember, you know, like music videos would be too edgy in the nineties if they had like, uh, uh, christ imagery and stuff i right I you, you, I, you you think of like the madonna like a prayer video kind of yeah i think all yeah. of that's very 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 dumb well uh, in, in in particular and i don't mean this in in a you know re- with a religious bias one way or the other this just is the case the catholic church is a very large and powerful organization and when they when they want to cancel something they they fucking do it yeah i mean that's true but that's also what the movie's about, so that's kind of funny too. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, art imitating life going on because, you know, you think about the time period this movie came in, like you know the story we're watching unfold. Um, this would have been only twenty years after World War II, and Europe was near, nearly decimated by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, this was after the McCarthy era. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that kind of playing in the subtext of what we're what we're seeing as well. But I'm I'm I've seen the movie and I have a lot to say about it. But you hadn't before. What did you think? There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of naked sort of writhing about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I mean, it's gorgeous like it's a really pretty movie like it has some incredible uh cinematography um Mm -hmm. i thought uh oliver reed was fantastic i thought vanessa redgrave was fantastic um you know uh, the the witch hunters were really good too um i don't know i i just i know this movie was controversial and maybe it's just because i so do not give a fuck about religion um, the, to me, I just like, couldn't figure out like why, I mean, I, of course I could figure out why it's controversial, but it also was just like, not tame, but you know what I mean? Like, like it, it doesn't feel dangerous. It just feels like it's a movie, you know? Right. Uh, but, but I don't know. Um, and about a real historical event. And I didn't, I didn't know this, um, until, uh, I watched another video after I watched the movie this last time. It was like a it was, it was like a podcast or something and somebody uploaded to YouTube. But they go over the actual history of this event. And oh, interesting. this okay. is shockingly accurate. Like they didn't leave out pretty much anything. Like basically everything we see in the movie is exactly how it occurred. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, down to minute details, like towards the end. um, I I won't give things away, obviously, but you know, um, uh, there's an execution scene where somebody's asking to 
to be hung to you know put them out of their misery um and then there's we see a priest tying the noose into smaller knots so that can't be done that is i guess this was a very well recorded event because there was a lot of eyes on what was going on at the time so there's lots of different historical accounts that they can sort of put together but really the only the only difference between what we see in the movie and what actually happened was that um in the movie it kind of feels like it took place over the course of four to six months um when in reality this was would have been over the course of like five to ten years Oh, interesting. Okay. Like at one point we see Irving Grandier in a, in like a prison cell. Uh, I guess he was there for like a full year. Ooh, Jesus. Yeah. And, and yeah. And uh, he did a lot of writing from jail. So, um, hmm. so a lot of that like went into the historical account. So it's interesting that like, you know, the movie does have all of these subtextual reads to it and you can definitely see this is very much like a uh early 70s style subversive movie yeah but yeah i mean for sure all it's, it's definitely trying to to say that you know to say some shit and mm-hmm. and to do it in you know an auteur director way i mean he's definitely uh, uh, they're definitely not pulling their punches. It's interesting because I always kind of, because again, I, I've heard of this movie a lot. This movie definitely has a reputation, mm-hmm. um, especially as a kind of, you know, as a horror movie, like it's on Shudder. But it's interesting because it's not like a horror movie, like a horror movie. Yeah, it's I, like, I, I it's don't like even a, necessarily oh, know if that, an accurate description of what it is. I mean, it, well, I mean, and I'm not, way, one of, I'm not that guy who's like, Oh, that's not horror because there isn't a serial killer or a no, zombie no, yeah, in it. But no, what, what I'm trying to say is I, I think it's, it's interesting because this is way more horrific. Right. Than, than usually horror movies are trying to be because it's trying to scare you in a different way. It's right. it's not trying to make you you know afraid of uh, you know going to camp. It's it's trying to make to show you like yeah how fucking horrible and ugly the world can be, and how people can manipulate systems, uh, you know while operating within them. Like I liked the movie. It, it's very interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I watched it today and there's kind of a lot to process here. Oh, yeah. It, it, I, I don't even I feel like the first time I saw it, I didn't really appreciate the historicity of it almost at all. Um, I mean, I liked it as just like this weird fucking experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I so I listened to um, uh, last podcast on the left recently did a series about the plague. Mm-hmm. And about this, you know, particular period in time, um, I, I listened to that like a, just a few months ago. So it's kind of fresh in my head still. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought all of that aspect of it was really interesting as well. Because like, I mean, I mean, this isn't really about the plague, you know, uh, uh, it just kind of takes place during that time. It's a setting. Yeah. Um, but that I, I don't know, just this 
period of time is fascinating and terrifying. And also to see the way that these systems still exist and people can still manipulate systems like this. Like, you know, how common is it for people to manipulate people based on religion for political gain? I mean, that shit's still fucking happening. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, one of the things I thought was interesting, knowing how how long the event really took place, is I guess this this display that these nuns would put on where, you know, you had these witch hunters come in and say, you know, look at them writhing in ecstasy and, and, you know, worshiping the devil and building altars towards their, their sex God. Um, this became like a roadshow almost where people would come from other cities to watch these nuns do this. Oh, crazy. And huh. they did it for a number of years, even after, even after Grandier, and eventually people got bored with it and stopped going. Wow. That's pretty nuts. Uh, yeah. Which, which kind of plays into this other thing that's sort of happening with this movie, which I think is interesting um, is that, you know, this is, it's, you know, being sold to a horror audience being on shutter. I sort of heard about it from horror circles, I guess, online horror circles, um, but it's more of a historical costume drama. Yeah. Uh, ultimately genre wise. Um, and it, you know, sort of an a picture um, with like this Royal Shakespeare Academy style cast, but because the movie is so profane and, and so hysterical and kind of out there with, with its imagery, it sort of accidentally becomes an exploitation movie. Yeah. It, it's interesting because you know, I'm I'm looking at and I on IMDb it says it's rated X. And right. it, it's interesting because like, you know, all the sex that happens is off screen. All there is 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 some like I said, there's some naked sort of writhing about. Um, but it I don't know. Again, this feels like a, a, a 70s sort of auteur picture to me. Like, you know, I this doesn't feel that far removed from a Stanley Kubrick. No, true. In fact, you know, certainly a movie like this and and um, uh, uh, Clockwork Orange feel cut from the same cloth. Oh, absolutely. Um, this was that era, you know, the, the 70s um, savage cinema uh, mm. where both in the world of exploitation and in and in studio pictures, there was this interest in violence and random violence and human violence and that violence begets violence. You know, these sort of anti-violence films that are being made by people who do not believe in violence and are, are actively, you know, warning people of the dangers of it while at the same time making the most violent movies made ever at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is in that era. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I come away from this movie with a little bit more every time I see it. And I think there's a lot you can say about it. Um, well, I, lo- I, I love the way the movie looks. Um, it's, yeah, it's- I mean, absolutely. Like at least if, if nothing else on a surface level, mm-hmm. this movie is fucking gorgeous. 
Yeah, uh, it's, it's really well shot, especially now that you're you're able to see it in its actual like presentation. You know, like act. It wasn't like a VHS cut or whatever that's cutting the wrong aspect ratio and all that mm. stuff. Um, it, they're getting they're getting better at digitizing it, and hopefully, fingers crossed, eventually, like a Kino Lorber or something, somebody will like put out a an official version of this movie. But uh, yeah, I, I when I saw it in the Arrow, it was shown as a double feature with a documentary about the the director Derek Jarman, who did the production design in The Devils, um, and would later on he became a director. It was very a uh, mover and a shaker in like early um, independent. LGBT cinema and was one of the people who sort of discovered Tilda Swinton. Oh, interesting. Um, and you can definitely, if you've seen any of Derek Jarman's movies, which have this sort of theatricality and almost sort of stage like quality to it. Mm -hmm. Um, you feel that here. Um, and I think that that sort of Jarman esque, um, artifice, and like intentional artifice is mm-hmm. something you you can even see in uh, what we talked about recently with uh, uh, the Cohen brother, or uh, Joel Cohen's um, or was it Ethan? I forget which Cohen did the most recent Macbeth. Yeah, uh, Joel, Joel Cohen. Yeah, um, no, for sure. Like I can see a lot of uh, uh, like production design, like the you know the castles have these kind of hot high vaulted ceilings and this stark black and white, mm-hmm. uh, you know, imagery. Um, again, it is very interesting and it looks, it makes it have kind of a timeless look to it. it, it you know, it, mm-hmm. it, yeah, I mean, you can tell it's of the seventies, but it almost, doesn't look like that because of the production design because it, it's so uh stylized uh, yeah and, and because it has almost this kind of like anti-passion play quality to it it gives it a very stagey feel which which does make it more timeless and it makes it um yeah that's it's interesting that the that the the way the story plays out, and I, I would have thought had I not listened to that podcast that talked about the actual event, that a lot of this was sort of the choice of the writers to sort of create this this Christ like narrative, this martyrdom narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all there in the original story. But it it certainly they play into that um, yeah. with the structure of of the movie, even though Grandier is hardly you know without sin or fault or anything like that he's not well, yeah but, but he's not a savior per se but he's also you know become sort of a, a martyr for an ideal it, well he's not a completely innocent person but he is he is innocent of the crimes of which he's being accused right uh and, and i think i think that's noteworthy um yeah, I mean it's is very interesting, very really tragic, um, really upsetting story that has, I think, one of the most bleak uh, final shots I've ever seen in a movie. Um, and even though, and you know, I think the reason it got rated what it got rated wasn't just you know the blasphemous stuff in it. I'm sure that 
didn't help. But I think it's it's sort of an accumulative thing. It's like almost like what happened with um, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, where the movie just has this it's hysterical quality to it. Like the whole movie's on an 11 the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And every scene is just sort of ramping up and everybody is, you know, is uh, seems like a, a exposed nerve throughout the course of the runtime. And the movie is just kind of playing with that tension expertly, I might add, uh, by Ken Russell, who is a weirdo. <laughs> um, and uh, as he went on in his career, um, he would end up making like erotic cable movies and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, this, uh, this movie is... Um, a product of his time, but a really interesting one. And I, I recommend people check it out. It's, don't go into it thinking you're going to see like a horror movie like The Exorcist or something. But as more sort of, yeah, I think anti-pageant play is appropriate. Also appropriate, given that this, is, this will come out the uh, day after Easter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not intended. Oh, that's kind of funny. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, um, in, in a lot of ways, this movie is scarier than the exorcist because, uh, again, I mean, you can still see the, the same, the same, uh, uh, systems and machines that allowed an injustice like this to occur still very much exist in different forms. Um, the, the same way people's ideals uh, uh, and morals and ethics still get exploited for power and control mm-hmm. still exists uh, uh, very much relevant you know all of that stuff makes this much more unsettling if not you know e- e- even though it's not jump scares uh, it-, it definitely left me feeling pretty icky all right and what did you have as our streaming homework next episode uh, the next episode, we are going to uh, stick around this time era and watch some good old copaganda uh, <laughs> with the original Dirty Harry movie on HBO Max. Right. Which you have seen and I have not. It has been a long time since I've seen it, though. But yes. Yes. That, uh, that, that It finally happened, folks. It finally. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, this is on my list of shame. I always meant to see it. Um, so we'll, we'll get around to it. We'll talk about it. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the things we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at mcguffinpod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can also leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whichever podcatcher is your preferred, um, whether that be Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Player.fm, whichever. Uh, please bump us up in that algo. You can read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by going to my Twitter page at VC Cassidy, and in my bio, you'll see the link to the Arts and Entertainment page. Click on that. And somewhere in there, you'll see my reviews. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram at BC Cassidy. And be sure to check out the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff 
at mcguff.in. You can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid, and you can follow my uh, art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Um, uh, yeah, like I said at the top of the show, this should come out after um, we've wrapped on uh, production of Murder on the Orient Express. Um, uh, if you came and saw it, thank you very much. I definitely appreciate it. Um, it, it was it's been a really fun show to be a part of uh and it is you know it was really fun to like act in a in a play again so um that was really Mm -hmm. all right and that is the episode call me vain and proud the greatest sinner ever to walk god's earth but satan's boy i could never be i haven't the humility bye